God bless us and the Virgin protect us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We continue. In earlier conferences, we saw that during the 1980s, the miracle of the Son occurred year after year at Tre Fontane. And we asked what that meant in itself and what Our Lady is telling us by repeating that stupendous miracle so many times. In order to better appreciate the answers to those questions, let's have a quick review. Remember that on the 33rd anniversary of the first apparition of the Virgin Revelation, Saturday, April 12, 1980, more than 3,000 people, including 25 priests, gathered at the Grotto at Tre Fontane to hear Bruno speak and to attend a commemorative Mass. And remember that although the altar is up near the mouth of the cave and has a roof over it, the front of the chapel is wide open, and so when there's any crowd at all, most of them will be out in the weather. So the Mass began about 5 p.m., and at about 10 to 6, the Mass was interrupted for half an hour because of the miracle. And the reason they paused the Mass was so that people could calm down and return their attention to the Holy Sacrifice. What follows was taken from the official Franciscan report. The Franciscans have the pastoral care of the shrine. Quote, The sun seemed to move through the sky towards the grotto and approach the earth. It could be seen with absolute ease, without hurting the eyes, as a ball of fire rotating wildly. Seeming larger than normal, there appeared inside its iridescent crown, the outer solar crown, in various colors, mainly red, pink, and black, like incandescent magma moving rapidly as if boiling, forming different con configurations, variously identified by the witnesses, a cross, an M, a heart surrounded by stars or dripping blood, the monogram of Christ, the IHS, two joined hands, the Virgin of Revelation. Some saw the solar crown dissolved and reconnected in three circles of various colors. Others have noticed that despite the obstacle of numerous trees, the sun bounced in clear sight with a warm and vivid light, almost like fire. It illuminated the chapel of the convent where the Eucharist is kept, the fronds of the trees, and the clothing of the people. Close quote. And as we've heard, many lapsed Catholics returned to the faith, and many people were miraculously cured of their ailments. And the official records show that these same sort of miraculous events took place on April 12, 1980, 1982, 1985, 1986, when the Miracle of the Sun was filmed and broadcast on Italian television, and in 1987, on the 40th anniversary of the Virgin's first apparition. The first thing to be noted is that just as the miracle of the sun in Fatima in 1917 was an unmistakable heavenly confirmation of the messages to the children, so also the repeated miracles of the sun at Tre Fontane are unmistakable heavenly confirmations of the messages to Bruno. And they are also an unmistakable heavenly confirmation of the statement that Bruno had recorded in his diary in June 1948. The Virgin made me understand that the message of Fatima continues at Tre Fontane. The repetition of the miracle of the Sun at Tre Fontane is an unmistakable heavenly confirmation that the message at Tre Fontane is a continuation of the message of Fatima. Okay, 
Now let's spend some time considering the symbolism seen during the many repetitions of this miracle in Rome. The symbolism of the colors red, pink, and black, which appeared inside the solar crown. We'll briefly consider some of the scriptural and liturgical symbolism of these three colors. Red. What does red symbolize? Among other things, red symbolizes the shedding of blood, and so red vestments are worn on the Feast of the Precious Blood, in votive masses of the Lord's Passion, and of course, the Feast of the Martyrs, who shed their blood for the faith. Red also symbolizes the burning fire of God's charity, and so it is used during Pentecost. Pink. What does pink symbolize? Well, rose-colored vestments, sometimes mistakenly called pink vestments, are traditionally worn as a sign of joy on Gaudete Sunday, the third Sunday of Advent. Rose is an expression of joy because, liturgically speaking, in just a little while the Lord will finally be with us. And that is also very significant, since the Church keeps two basic truths before our eyes during Advent. On the one hand, we're preparing to celebrate the anniversary of the first coming of our Lord some 2,000 years ago on His mission of mercy. And on the other hand, we're reminded to be prepared for an upcoming event, the second coming of our Lord, when He comes to judge the living and the dead. Black. What does black symbolize? Since black symbolizes mourning, the sorrow of death, and the tomb, black vestments are worn on All Souls Day and for Requiem Masses. One scriptural commentary notes that, quote, black is often associated with the threatening presence of God in dark times, a divine judgment upon sin and evil. Throughout the Old Testament, images of the coming of God in judgment are painted in hues of black. The day of the Lord, a day of judgment for sin, is described by the prophets as a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Close quote. So the colors themselves symbolize, first, the shedding of blood and the burning fire of God's charity. Second, joy in the fact that the second coming of the Lord is nigh on hand. And third, mourning, death, and judgment day. The symbolism of the solar crown being dissolved and reconnected in three circles of various colors. The solar crown separated into three circles and united back together again is symbolic of the Most Blessed Trinity. The symbolism of the various figures seen inside of the solar crown during the miracle. Many of these are very obvious. Obviously, the IHS in the sun symbolizes the holy name of Jesus since it's the first three letters in Greek, capitals, of Jesus Christ. The cross symbolizes our Lord's passion. The heart surrounded with stars is symbolic of the woman of the apocalypse, the virgin of Revelation, who is clothed with the sun and crowned with 12 stars. The heart dripping blood is symbolic of the sorrow in her sorrowful and immaculate heart. The M is a symbol for Mary, commonly used for the sorrowful mother at the foot of the cross. The joined hands are a symbolic reminder of prayer, a reminder of the Virgin of Revelation's request that we, quote, do not forget the rosary, which cooperates much with your salvation, the Hail Marys, which you say with faith and love, 
are so many golden arrows that reach the heart of Jesus. Close quote. And a reminder of Our Lady's ardent request at Fatima that we ought to, quote, pray, pray very much and make sacrifice for sinners. For many souls go to hell because there are none to sacrifice themselves and pray for them. Close quote. The Virgin of Revelation. Obviously, by appearing within the solar crown, she is showing the world who she is and the precise time in history when we are living. That she is the Virgin of Revelation, that she is the woman actually clothed with the sun in chapter 12 of the Apocalypse. The symbolism of the sun brightening the people's clothing. Our Lady calls to mind the lights at Fatima that shower down on the people. Beams of light in general are symbolic of the graces and virtues from heaven pouring down upon the people gathered at the grotto. And of course, light is also symbolic of faith. The light was shining on the people, but were the people reflecting that light by a life of faith, by a life of charity? The symbolism of being able to look at the sun with ease. The very fact that the witnesses could look directly at the sun with ease, this remarkable diminishment of the light is very significant scripturally. Cornelius Lapide, the great 16th century commentator, speaks of this very phenomenon. Quote, the sun, moon, and stars are dimmed when the leaders of the church or the world depart from justice and holiness to depravity or wickedness. Close quote. The symbolism of the miracle occurring repeatedly in Rome. The fact that this miracle was repeated over and over and over again in Rome, and not just in Rome, but at a Catholic shrine, is indicative that it is not the rulers in the world, but rather the rulers of the church, who are being symbolically indicted by this heavenly phenomenon. It's a repeated symbolic indication that they have departed from justice and holiness to depravity and wickedness. The Virgin of Revelation said to Bruno, Many of my sons, priests, have lost the dignity of the order, no longer live in honesty and love, no longer catechize souls. The Virgin shows me religious men and women, priests, bishops, cardinals, and tells me, See these fools deny the true God and have proudly made themselves gods. The corruption and spiritual evil you see is being done to satisfy their God and their material good. They are evil and fail to do good. Evil has entered into them. They are out of their minds and walk on a wrong path. They have no faith and do not believe. Close quote. Bruno. What I dreamt will never happen. It is too painful, and I hope that the Lord will not allow the Pope to deny all the truths of the faith and to put himself in place of God. How much pain I felt in the night. My legs became paralyzed, and I could no longer move for the pain which I felt when I saw the church reduced. 
to a mass of ruins. Close quote. The symbolism of the dimming of the sun with regards to the people. It isn't just the church leaders who are symbolically being shown to be under judgment. There's also symbolism here which pertains to the Catholic people. As one scriptural commentator points out, the partial or complete darkening of the sun, moon, or stars in the Old Testament, as well as in ancient Jewish writings, quote, is a sign that the people have violated their covenant obligations to God and are undergoing judgment. Close quote. In other words, it's a sign that they haven't kept the commandments. It's a sign that they've turned away from God. And the location itself is indicative of the precise covenant obligations that they have collectively violated. The symbolism of the miracle occurring at the cave, Tre Fontani. The fact that this miracle was repeated over and over and over again at this particular location is indicative of grave violations of specific commandments by which the people offend God. That cave at Tre Fontani had been a place of great sin. It had been used by prostitutes right up to the time when Our Lady first appeared to Bruno, which is what she seemed to be alluding to when she told him that she would work miracles with this sinful soil. And remember that when Our Lady first appeared there to the Venerable Luigina, it was just after Luigina had found and buried there the remains of an aborted baby. So when we consider the grave sins specifically associated with that location, the fact that prostitution is a sin against the marriage covenant and is always associated with contraception, abortion, and perversion. The fact that this was a site containing the buried remains of an aborted baby. And the fact that this was the very site where Bruno had been writing his heretical and blasphemous sermon. When we consider all that, we see that this is a site of sins against the marriage covenant, a site of sexual sins and perversions, a site of sins of contraception and abortion, a site of sins of heresy and blasphemy. And by the 1980s, when these miracles were recurring, all the sins associated with this site, the sins against marriage, sexual sins, contraception, abortion, perversions, heresy, blasphemy, all these sins had become widespread throughout much of the church and the world. So in the dimming of the sun's brightness, we see a symbolic warning of judgment on corrupt church leaders who have departed from justice and holiness to depravity and wickedness. And we see a symbolic warning of judgment on the Catholic people as a whole who haven't kept the commandments, who have turned away from God to sins against the marriage covenant, sexual sins, contraception, abortion, perversions, heresy, and blasphemy. The symbolism of the miracle being repeated many times. Why would such a warning be repeated over and over and over again? Because, according to St. Vincent Ferrer, heaven often puts a warning in the sky 
when a great and heavy affliction is about to come upon the world, so that people may either advert the punishment through prayers and penance, or may prepare themselves to suffer the affliction. So these were repeated forewarnings of great and heavy afflictions, meant to encourage people through prayer, penance, and amendments of their lives to either turn back the hand of God, or failing that, to prepare themselves for the upcoming afflictions. The symbolism of the dancing of the sun. We'll briefly consider explanations from both scripture and tradition. First, the scriptural symbolism involved in the moving and spinning of the sun. As one scriptural commentary explains, quote, the cosmic order of nature and the course of the sun, moon, and stars was seen as essential to the ongoing welfare of the world's existence. This order is interrupted and dissolved when men go against the spiritual order of God's laws, which are to regulate the course of their lives. Hence, God judges the heavens by destroying its orderly movements in order to indicate that mankind has violated his moral order and is being judged. He alters the fixed patterns of sun, moon, and stars to indicate judgment on those who have wrongly altered his moral patterns, especially through idolatry. Close quotes. Since God alters the fixed patterns of sun, moon, and stars to indicate judgment on those who have wrong, wrongly altered his moral patterns, especially through idolatry, what sort of idolatrous behavior might be incurring his judgment? If this is a heavenly warning against idolaters, where are they? Who are all these idolaters? Now, in its essence, an idolater is someone who in his life has dethroned God, so to speak, and put something else in the place of God. The idolater has literally put something else before God. In other words, the true God is not as important as some mere creature. The idolater actually serves that mere creature in place of the true God. That mere creature has become his God. And in our society, idolatry is actually the most common religion. The mere creature, the idol that is most commonly served, is the self. An immense number of people, practically speaking, have turned away from the service of the true God, and in his place, they serve themselves and their own selfish interests. They literally put themselves before God. They're a law unto themselves. Just look at all the social chaos all around us. If these people observe the commandments, if they observe the commandments, it's a matter of convenience or custom, not conviction. They serve their own pleasures according to their own convenience and their own appetites, be it sins against the marriage covenant, like separation, divorce, remarriage, be it sins, sexual sins of any stripe, ranging from watching mainstream TV shows or porn to engaging in out-and-out -out fornication, adultery, or even perversions. They use contraception without a thought. They may find abortion distasteful or even wrong, but at the end of the day, no one should be punished. It's a choice, and who am I to judge? 
and on and on and on it goes. An immense number of people, quite probably the majority of people, have turned away from service of the true God. And in his place, they serve themselves and their own selfish interests. In our society, idolatry is actually the most common religion. The pews in virtually every Catholic church are full of idolaters. And as we've heard, tradition indicates that the dancing of the sun is also a sign of the end of the world. St. Alphonsus states, quote, Another sign of the end of the world will be tremors and unusual movements which will occur in the heavens. That is, the firmness of the heavens will seem to be lacking as they will tremble before the Lord comes to judge the world. Close quote. So the dancing of the sun is symbolic of God's judgment falling on those who have wrongly altered his moral patterns, especially through idolatry, and it's symbolic of the end of the world. The symbolism of the miracle occurring at Tre Fontane. As we saw in the first conference, Tre Fontane is the site where St. Paul, the great apostle, was beheaded by the order of Nero, a savage pagan ruler, a type of the Antichrist. The marble chopping block across which St. Paul laid his neck is still there. And when his head was chopped off, it bounced three times down a gentle hill. At each point where St. Paul's head bounced, a spring immediately began to flow, which is now why it is now called Tre Fontane, the Three Fountains. We also saw that Tre Fontane is the burial site of St. Zeno and his 10,203 companions. These are Catholic slaves who worked on the construction of the Baths of Diocletian, and then when the project was finished, were martyred by the savage pagan government. We also saw that Tre Fontane is a site where St. Bernard had a famous vision of souls being released from purgatory by virtue of the Mass he was saying, and then being escorted by angels up a staircase to heaven. Now obviously the beheading of a Catholic ruler and the slaughter of thousands upon thousands of Catholic laymen instantly brings to mind the French Revolution when the king was guillotined and somewhere between 19 to 44,000 people were massacred and over 16,000 people were guillotined. And it also brings to mind that solemn warning given by our Lord to Sister Lucia. Given that my ministers follow the example of the King of France in delaying the execution of my command, they will follow him into misfortune. And those very elements, the killing of a Catholic bishop, in fact an apostle, and the slaughter of Catholic laymen, also brings to mind certain of the visions shown to Bruno by the Virgin of Revelation. Quote, While the Pope was celebrating Mass, there was a great confusion and voices rose threateningly. They advanced towards the altar. The police began shooting. There are shouts, flee, flee, the Pope is hit. But reddens the white cassock and shouts are heard, he is dead, he is dead. Priests will be trampled and slaughtered. The dead, blood, blood, blood everywhere. The Virgin of Revelation takes me to a big square and says, Look what they do to my children, those who remain faithful to the faith and the church of my son, and the great persecution for true purification. I see many priests in their cassocks, and religious men and women in religious habits of all shapes and colors, all in a row, and the guards push and drag them one at a time onto a wooden stage. 
They made them kneel and asked him to get rid of the habit. To the answer no, they took his head and put it on a stump, and there they were beheaded by the executioner who had an axe. The blood spurted everywhere, and those who waited for the same martyrdom cried out, These are the souls who cry out under the altar of God. The assassins and those who witnessed this slaughter shouted, Hurrah for atheism! We have finally freed ourselves from the habits and the vows that have kept us slaves, believing in the existence of God. And here, we are finally free. Many priests and sisters are dismembered in St. Peter's Square. Close quotes. And of course, the killing of an apostle, the slaughter of Catholic laymen, and angels escorting souls into heaven also brings to mind significant parts of the vision seen by the children in Fatima during the third secret. We'll quote excerpts from that vision. Quote, And we saw a bishop dressed in white. We had the impression it was the Holy Father. Other bishops, priests, men and women religious going up a steep mountain, at the top of which there was a big cross of rough-hewn trunks as of a cork tree with a bark. Having reached the top of the mountain on his knees at the foot of the big cross, the Holy Father was killed by a group of soldiers who fired bullets and arrows at him. And in the same way, there died one after another, the other bishops, priests, men and women religious, and the various lay people of different ranks and positions. Beneath the two arms of the cross, there were two angels, each with a crystal aspersorium in his hand, in which they gathered up the blood of the Mars, and with it sprinkled the souls that were making their way to God. Close quotes. So at one and the same time, the location of Tre Fontani brings to mind the beheading of the king and the martyrdom and slaughter of so many of his subjects during the French Revolution, the killing of the pope and the martyrdom and slaughter of so many priests, religious and faithful, and the visions given to Bruno by the Virgin of Revelation, and the killing of the pope, the bishops, priests, and religious and faithful, with the angels sprinkling the blood of the martyrs on the souls, making their way to heaven. The symbolism of Bruno's presence at these miracles, of choosing Bruno to be a visionary and a bearer of heavenly messages to the Pope. In Bruno, what do we see? We see a communist. We see a spy who portrays himself as one thing while really being another. We see a vociferous enemy of the church. We see a blaspheming heretic who hated Our Lady. We see a man who didn't scruple to steal from priests and who made a point of physically and verbally abusing priests. We see a man who had sworn an oath to kill the Pope and had gone so far as to buy the weapon and choose the date. We see a man who didn't scruple to violate his marriage covenant by adultery. We see a thug and a wife beater. All in all, we see a man who had actively, deliberately, and wholeheartedly subscribe to the heirs of Russia in a vicious lifestyle. The instantaneous conversion of Bruno is a, both a promise and a warning. His conversion is a visible and concrete example of what Our Lady can do with someone completely and utterly dominated by the heirs of Russia in a vicious, immoral lifestyle that she can instantly convert someone like that from the very depths of sin and depravity to the heights of Catholic fervor and charity. And given that Our Lady can do that in an instant with a man like Bruno, it's a sign, it's a promise of what she could do and would do with a whole nation of people 
dominated by those same errors and vicious lifestyles, if only mankind and the Pope would heed her requests. It's a sign that although her errors have already spread throughout the world, it was still not too late, even in the 1980s, in the very height of the Cold War, it was still not too late for Russia to convert and become a nation of fervent, flame-beathing Catholics ready to spread the gospel throughout the world. And the presence of a man like Bruno at these miracles, of choosing him to be a visionary and a bearer of heavenly messages to the Pope, is also a warning. Our Lady went to Rome to beg the hierarchy to listen to her Fatima message, even using Bruno, whose plan was to kill the Pope, as a warning of what would come to pass if they didn't listen. Our Lady stopped Bruno in his tracks. She converted him. She held him back. There was still time. They didn't have to follow the example of the kings of France. It wasn't too late. She would take care of them. She deflected the course of the bullets of Mahatmat Ali Aga when he shot St. John Paul II. She used Bruno to warn the Pope of the upcoming attack of Father Juan Fernandez Kroll. And when he attacked, although he drew a blood, she stopped the bayonet from seriously injuring St. John Paul II. So the presence of someone like Bruno is a warning that although Our Lady had been intervening, if they continued to follow the example of the kings of France, then Our Lady was no longer going to be able to hold back the arm of her son, which is exactly what she told Bruno in 1986. Quote, For the sake of justice, I have to let go of my son's hand, precisely because justice has to be fulfilled. Close quote. The presence of someone like Bruno is a warning that they shouldn't continue to follow the example of the kings of France, that if they delay the execution of our Lord's command, then they will fall into misfortune, and all those terrible consequences would come to pass. Did they pay any attention to Our Lady's warnings? Has anyone paid any attention to Our Lady's warnings? Because she just gave another warning, what may very well turn out to be her final warning. She just gave another warning, just last year. Just last year, Our Lady gave another warning. On May 4, 2016, in the Portuguese town of Orem, which is seven miles away from the Covida area, the Covida area is the very site which Our Lady of Fatima appeared in 1917. On May 4th of this last year, Our Lady gave another warning. On May 5th, 2016, the secular Portuguese newspaper, this is a secular Portuguese newspaper, Correio de Manha reported, quote, Yesterday, more than 100 faithful experienced a phenomenon at Arem, which they described as a new miracle of the sun. Close quote. I asked my friend, whose first language is Portuguese, to give me a summary of what the witnesses reported on Portuguese TV. These videos are readily available online. For the first time in 50 years, the pilgrim statue of Our Lady of Fatima visited Orem and had been venerated throughout the night in the church. At about 8 a.m., as soon as they processed out of the church with Our Lady, the miracle began and it lasted about 15 minutes.
The priest did not see anything unusual, but this was seen by about a hundred of the people in the procession who all described the same phenomena. They could look at the sun, and the outer rim of the sun was spinning and it was red. Then it turned golden as if it were made of gold. Then it turned blue. The whole time it was spinning at a high speed. The sun itself was also blinking. One interviewer noted that a hundred witnesses saw what some are calling a miracle, and that all their accounts are the same. An interviewer asked, was it a miracle? One witness said, yes, it was a miracle, and Our Lady is trying to say something to us. It was a miracle, and Our Lady is trying to say something to us. Okay, so what is she saying? What does this mean? Let's consider a little background information in order to get a better grasp on what she's saying. On August 13, 1917, the three children were kidnapped by the Freemasonic mayor of Orem. He jailed them and then spent two days trying to pry the secret out of them or to get them to admit that they were lying, going so far as to threaten to martyr them by burning them alive in boiling oil. But through it all, the children remained steadfast. Meanwhile, over the COVID area, there were some 15 to 18,000 people awaiting Our Lady's arrival. And even though the children were being held in prisoner up at Orem, Our Lady still came to the Kova. One witness described some of the events. Quote, the clap of thunder was followed by lightning, and at once we began to notice a small cloud, very pretty, white in color, very light, which hovered some moments over the home oak, then rose toward the sky and disappeared in the atmosphere. The faces of the people had all the colors of the rainbow, pink, red, and blue. The ground was covered with squares of different colors. Clothes were also of every color of the rainbow. The trees did not appear to have branches and leaves, but only flowers. Everything seemed laden with flowers, and every leaf appeared to be a flower. Close quote. Now, obviously, Our Lady knew the children weren't going to be up there. But Our Lady does things on her own terms. Although she knew full well the children were up at a rim, she came to the Kova as she had said. Then on August 19th, she unexpectedly appeared to the children near their homes at a place called Valinos. Now it's important to note that this is the exact opposite of that Magigori scam, where the devil that pretends to be Our Lady goes on tour with these liars and during their seances allows himself to be summoned up on demand. So in 1917, even though the children had been taken there, Our Lady did not appear in a rim. But almost a hundred years later, on May 4th, 2016, Our Lady finally graces a rim with her presence, and she does a miracle there. Our Lady does things on her own terms. She's way, way more powerful than these Freemasons, and her plans cannot be thwarted. Even though, for the most part, her message has been ignored and forgotten, even though, for the most part, her requests have not been fulfilled by the bishops, the priests, and the faithful, even though the consecration of Russia has still not been done, she will still triumph and conquer evil. Now with all that as background, let's ask ourselves what all this means. The date is significant. May 4th is the day on which the Fatima Novena begins. The symbolism here is obvious. The days are numbered. It's the 99th year. Again, the symbolism is obvious. Time is short. Time is running out. The time is running out.
We must stay close to Our Lady, very close. The symbolism of the colors is fairly obvious. The red symbolizes martyrdom. The gold symbolizes the presence of God and heavenly royalty. And the blue symbolizes Our Lady. The color red as a symbol of martyrdom is obviously related to the symbolism of the location, since Orem is the precise place where the three little children were put to the test, even unto death, to the point where they actually believed that the others had been martyred by being boiled alive in oil. And yet they each remained faithful. There are terrible trials ahead. There are terrible trials ahead. But even should we be threatened with martyrdom, we must remain firm in the faith by remaining close to and obedient to Our Lady, obedient even unto death. We must be prepared, fully prepared, to die for the truth. The symbolism of the pilgrimage following Our Lady is also obvious. We must faithfully follow Our Lady, stay very close to her, just like the children and the Apostle John, and she will conquer. The symbolism of this miracle not being visible to the priest is also fairly obvious. St. Francisco had to pray many rosaries. He could see her, but he could not hear Our Lady of Fatima. The priest today can't even see. This inability to see is symbolic of priests in the world today who are losing their faith and not praying, not praying their rosary, not even praying their breviaries. They're blinded and choking in the smoke of the operation of error. The Virgin of Revelation warned priests, quote, You are becoming worldly, divesting yourselves of the sacred to desecrate and abandon the priesthood given to you by my Son. The world thirsts for truth, but you no longer give it the water to quench its thirst. Many of you give bad example. You have completely forgotten the gospel. Close quote. Where was the parish priest? during the children's trials, miles away. Was he supporting them? No. No, he wasn't. The miracle of the sun should be in every single history book written since October 1917. Everyone in the world, not just the Catholics, should be familiar with all these details. And yet, how many priests even pay any attention to Fatima? So we must pray for priests and prelates, but remain faithful. Trust Our Lady, even when so many of the priests don't. Stay close to Our Lady. Consecrate yourself to Our Lady and trust her, just like the children and the Apostle John. Now pause for a moment and consider that as we've seen, the miracle of the Son was an absolutely unique and unprecedented, unparalleled historical event. That this miracle of biblical proportions took place and then almost a hundred years later, the sun dances again in virtually the same place, and it's practically ignored. We're living in a time when there are many false prophets and end-time prophecies, like that mind calendar, for example, or all that craziness about the year 2000. We're living in a time in which the people are claiming the end is coming, and then it comes and it goes, and it was not the end. This atmosphere has created a sort of immunity towards actually obeying our Lord's explicit command to read the signs of the times, an immunity to ever believing that this is something to concern ourselves with. Almost every time I discuss these things with priests, the response is a super patronizing answer along the lines of, people have always thought they were living in the end of the world. 
And this is said in such a way as if there's nothing more to talk about, that's the end of discussion, and to even entertain any further thoughts in this question is stupid. We can just continue doing what we're doing and living like we're living because all these prophetic end times just come and go and there is no end. And the terrifying result of all this is that when the real danger and the real prophet arrives, like Our Lady of Fatima, for example, people laugh and scorn and mock her and pay her no heed. They tell themselves it's all just a private revelation, we don't have to believe it, and they can't even be bothered to trouble themselves to consider the meaning of the miracle. And the miracle is absolutely, positively not a private revelation at all. It's a historical event. It's a historical event. Once we see this, we can see why when those terrible things predicted for the end arrive, so many people will be caught off guard. We can see why these things will come like a thief in the night. Because people have been conditioned by the lies of false prophets. They've been conditioned by the laxity of the priests. And they've been conditioned by the atmosphere of our society to think there is no danger of the second coming. Noah preached for a hundred years before the great flood struck. And as we all know, almost no one paid any attention to his warning. This latest miracle of sun is a very, very clear warning from Our Lady about upcoming events. A wake-up call for all those with eyes to see. But has anyone paid any attention to Our Lady's warnings? Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it is in our days. In fact, in Luke 17, verses 26 to 30, our Lord specifically states, He specifically states that the conditions at the end of the world would mirror both the days of Noah and the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we've already seen that the ancient Jewish commentaries state that, quote, the generation of the flood was not wiped out until they wrote marriage documents for the union of a man to a man or to an animal. The generation of the flood was not wiped out until they wrote marriage documents for the union of a man to a man or to an animal. We've already seen that these days are like the days of Noah and the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, who's paying any attention to that? Our Lord talked to Bruno about this. Quote, You have examples. Sodom and Gomorrah. They did not repent. They did not do penance. They did not pray. And you know what justice has done to them. In other examples, like Nineveh, who listened, repented, prayed, and did penance, and they were saved, as you proclaim in the prophecies that you do not remember anymore and you have forgotten through your own fault. Well, I still announce to you that if you do not convert, fire and the sword will descend upon you by your own fault on all, small or great, sinful or innocent, good or bad. 
That's why we call you all to conversion, true peace and true love. What you call peace and all that you're doing for peace is nothing but deceit because there is no conversion. There is no prayer to the one and holy God. There is no penance for purification and for the forgiveness of your sins. All this is preparing for a satanic war and you will lose your souls. Know this, that Satan, the evil one, the ancient spirit, is thirsty for souls. He wants souls in hell, the punishment deserved for his own will. I call you, convert sons. And I call you sons of mercy, if you convert. Sons of resurrection, if you change your life by renewing your heart. Repent and love. This is the sound of the trumpets of the final battle. Love, peace, mercy. Close quote. If you do not convert, fire and the sword will descend upon you and by your own fault on all, small or great, sinful or innocent, good or bad. Change your life by renewing your heart. Repent and love. We'll close with a meditation on the days of Noah. As we've seen, Noam and his family lived in times similar to our day. They always strove to cling to the truth and had a great love for God. For years, they tried to share that truth and love with others. But for various reasons, the others wouldn't let that truth and charity enter their hearts. Like today, many, many people were living very sinful lifestyles. But certainly, then as now, many people lived a very mild life. Well, they didn't seem like bad people. They were good neighbors and didn't seem so far off. But their hearts were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. They were doing just enough to look good and ease their conscience and yet still fit in. So they could avoid being thought of as extreme, avoid becoming outcasts in the crazy world they lived in. Pretty much like our day and age. Under God's orders, Noah preached repentance and built an ark. The whole time, the majority mocked him, the rest ignored him, and only a few remained friendly and kind to his face. But that was about it. They didn't embrace his preaching with their hearts. At best, they gave him a superficial hearing, a superficial agreement with his preaching, but they didn't embrace it with all their hearts. They weren't willing to embrace a truth that was so painful a truth that was such a heavy cross, a truth that didn't feel good, a truth that didn't make them look good in their neighbor's eyes, a truth that to embrace would instantly result in mockery and contempt. Even though many of them recognized at some level that what Noah was saying was true, still, it was just too costly, too painful to let themselves believe that God really meant what he said, the judgment was coming. The judgment was upon them. Yeah, this is bad, they tell themselves, but it's not that bad. Look at everyone else. I'm not that bad compared to them. There's safety in numbers. God knows we're weak. God has a sense of humor. 
And they'd push it all out of their minds. They wouldn't let themselves think about it. The Word of God was just too demanding. The Word of God was just too painful, too costly to fully embrace. And they would lull their consciences to sleep with these soothing lies. Soothing lies. Finally, the day arrives. The people watch Noah and his family board the ark. They watch the miraculous gathering of the animals load on board. Then God himself closes and seals that huge door. And then silence. Wonderful silence. No more preaching from that fanatic. Finally, some peace and quiet. Thank goodness Noah's locked up in there with all his animals. After a hundred years, the people could finally have some peace and quiet. And it was quiet. Quiet for a whole week. But then the rain starts. It's really raining. Now people are starting to get scared. And the more it rains, the more scared they get. They start knocking on them. Pounding on her. Let me in. Let me in. Let me in. But it's too late. It's too late. For the past hundred years, they rejected God's word. They rejected God's warning. God sent them a prophet. God sent them warning after warning. A full century of warnings. But they didn't listen. They didn't pay attention. They didn't place their faith in God. They placed their hope in themselves. And now the only reason they want on board is because they fear for their lives, not because they're filled with charity. They have no charity. They're not getting on board. They had their chance. They had their chance, and now it's too late. And now comes the worst part. Just picture the immense amount of grace Noah and his family must have been given to endure what happened next. The rains came, and their neighbors, their friends, their other family members, aunts, uncles, cousins, other relatives, came and knocked on the ark, pounded on the ark, begging for the door to be open. But God has closed that door, and it had to remain closed. And Noah's family trusted in God. As his justice fell, God gave them immense grace to endure it. The screaming, the terror, the children, desperate and crying, wailing for help. The mothers holding their babies up, begging them to at least take the babies and save them from this death. The desperation of those voices that once mocked them, now crying to them for help. But God had closed the door and it had to remain closed. The cold, dreary, depressing hours and hours with all this horrific wailing and crying 
till finally the last cries drowned out, leaving the eerie silence as the last person could no longer stay afloat and sank into the flooding waters to cleanse the earth of sin. What great sorrow pierced the hearts of all those on the ark as they listened to the silence. The overwhelming sorrow that could have so easily have been joy if only those poor souls would have embraced the virtues of faith, hope, and charity when there was still time. A great sorrow in spite of the consolation of realizing that some of those poor people had repented before drowning. What great thanksgiving Noah's family must have given to God for saving them in the midst of such an evil world, for giving them such a profound trust in God's mercy and justice. How unbelievably difficult this would have been, how much grace this would have taken to clearly recognize that God's justice is just and not to try to let anyone else into the ark not even a baby. How much grace it would have taken to not fall into the temptation to play God and think that they know better. What a drive that should give us to cling to truth and charity in this world gone mad. A world where virtually no one even knows what truth and charity are. A world in which so many of our friends and neighbors have their own truth and live their own lives as if there is no God. A world in which even the priests and bishops deny the moral laws of God. In which even the priests and bishops blatantly deny the justice of God. Blatantly deny that anyone goes to limbo. Blatantly deny that anyone goes to purgatory. Blatantly deny that anyone goes to hell. Do we know better than God? Is God's justice not just? Are we not called to trust God completely and trust that He knows what He is doing? The people in Noah's day did not trust. And look what happened to them. Lot's wife did not trust. And look what happened to her. Now we see even the priests and the religious mocking Fatima, ignoring Fatima, indifferent to Fatima. So Our Lady came to Rome and repeated the miracle over and over and over again, even ensuring that it would be filmed and broadcast on television. Our Lady did miracle after miracle after miracle, and still the clergy and the people remain indifferent. And yet, in spite of all this rejection and indifference, Our Lady, Lady still came to Aram, still came to give mankind a last-minute warning, still came to give one more warning, and yet the clergy and the people remain indifferent. They don't believe. They don't want to believe. They want, don't want to be bothered. And they just brush off 
these easily verifiable historical events backed up by so many witnesses? Are we paying attention to the signs that are so evident and so plain? Are we like men without eyes to see or minds to think? Are we paying any attention to the warnings that God has given us? Repent. Believe. Consecrate yourself to Our Lady. Live the message of Fatima and stay very, very close to her. Time is running out. It's running out.